Well, it's such a uh, privilege to be a, a Christian and to uh, know Jesus and to be loved by Jesus and to gather with his people. It's really a, a great joy to be a pastor and to be able to think and talk about some of the most important truths in all the world. And I am uh, thankful to be here with you. And so if you'll take your Bible and open up to the book of Romans, I want us to look at Romans chapter 3 and especially verses 21 through 25. So last week, this week, next week, we're looking at Romans chapter 3 and talking about uh, the Bible's answer to the question, how can you have peace with God? It's the beginning of the year, and at the beginning of the year, I always like to think about fundamentals in, in my life, what really matters. And uh, there's nothing that is more important, more fundamental, that matters more than knowing how you have peace with God. This is one of the reasons we're on the planet, actually, as a church, uh, to proclaim the Bible's answer to the question, how can you have peace with God? And this is one of our greatest privileges as a Christian, uh, knowing the answer to this question. There are a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to, but this is a question that we do know the answer to. I remember uh, a little while back reading a book called Ultimate Questions, and there are some questions that are ultimate questions that matter more than other questions. It's kind of like being on a plane that is about to crash, I guess. There are some questions that you need answered first, like how do we stop this plane from crashing? And so it doesn't really matter how comfortable your seat is if uh, your plane is crashing. This is one of those questions. It is like the ultimate one of those questions. How can you have peace with God? And uh, the Bible's answer to this question is different than anything you hear anywhere else. This is one of the things that makes the message of the Bible so exciting and so transforming. And yet, even though it's a fundamental question, an important question, an urgent question, an ultimate question, it is a question that most people get wrong. Most of the world gets this question wrong, and even... Sometimes, often, even for those who know the answer and can repeat the answer, it seems like it is still very difficult to keep the answer straight when it comes to living life. It's like the answer keeps falling out of our heads or the dots aren't always connected. And it's not so much because the ideas are so difficult to understand, like maybe, I don't know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. You talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and even some of the terms that you use are hard to process, but it's, it's not that way as much with how the Bible answers this question. It's not, I don't think, such an intellectual problem for us that makes it hard to understand. It's more of a heart problem. Because to understand the Bible's answer to the question, how can you have peace with God, you need to know, and you really need to know, that you need peace with God. This is a solution to a problem, and to understand the solution, you have to know the problem, which is why last week we began by looking at the, last, uh, the first three chapters of Romans. The gospel that we're going to be looking at today, Romans 3, 21 and following, is a solution to a problem. That's what Paul is giving here, a solution to a problem. And it's difficult to understand the solution unless you first understand the problem. And understanding the problem begins with understanding there is a God and he is angry. You remember Romans chapter 1, 
verse 18. After Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel, he begins in verse 18 by talking about the wrath of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. And God is angry not because he's bad, but instead because he's good. Another way to say it is because he's righteous. Obviously, when we talk about God, we don't get to make God up. He is who he is, and we know who he is because he's told us, and the place he's told us is in his word. And when we look at what he tells us about himself in his word, we see the God who created this universe is absolutely, 100%, completely holy, which means at the very least that he is different. He's unique. He's set apart. And one of the ways that he is different than us is that there is absolutely nothing that is ugly or hateful or wrong or wicked in him. He is pure, so pure that he cannot tolerate any form of sin. In other words, he always does what is right because he is what is right, which is awesome. It it makes him beautiful. It makes him worthy of, of worship. And it also honestly makes him scary because how are we going to stand before him for God to be good he has to hate evil and if he hates evil how can he love us that's the question and it's an important question because one day we're going to have to stand before God you are going to have to stand before God The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and after that face judgment. And that means that this absolutely holy God who cannot stand to look at sin and because of his character cannot overlook sin will evaluate each and every one of our lives. There's a day of evaluation and this is God that we're talking about. You know, even if there was a day when you had to stand before a group of people And they had to evaluate you and make a judgment. If next week I said we're going to have one of you stand and the rest of the church is going to evaluate you, you would be frightened, even more frightened than by Omicron. And and this is God that we're talking about. This is uh, someone who has seen it all. This is someone who knows it all. This is someone who remembers it all. This is someone who understands it all. And the picture is of a heavenly courtroom. That's one of the images you have to have in your mind to understand the gospel. A heavenly courtroom with this all-knowing, all-wise, all-holy God as judge and your life on trial. And if he's perfectly righteous, holy like that, you have to think, of course, what are you going to present to him as a means of defense? If you were to die, and the time, time is coming... You are going to die. And if he's the judge and your life is on trial, what are you going to present to him as a means of defense for all the ways you've disobeyed? And what are you going to present to him that's going to validate you, in a sense, as worthy of being accepted into his presence? How are you going to make your case? That's the question. That's the problem. How can you have peace with God? And part of the reason that's a question, a problem that you have to think about, is because it cannot be your own efforts. 
which is really what Paul's been working to show us in the beginning of Romans chapter 3. And the reason he has to work so hard to show us that is because he knows our instinctive answer to this question, what are we going to show God, is to look at ourselves every time. How am I going to be justified by God? Obviously, he's going to have to be gracious. We know that. But this is how we tend to think. He's going to be gracious gracious if I show him what I did and how I tried. And we think like that partly, probably, because that's how it works with almost everyone else, you know? It's funny. We're not used to the word justification, I don't think, the, the word in the Bible, but we're constantly trying to be justified. Our, our lives in a sense, are really like one big courtroom trial, if you think about it. And we are constantly being evaluated by others. And we're constantly evaluating others. We're living our lives always having to present something to others in order to be accepted by them. And we're always looking at what others have presented to us and making a determination about them. It's kind of like, as one pastor puts it, Say you want a job, and this is Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York, but he says, you want a job, what do you do? You, you put out a resume. That's how it works. And the resume is a record of your employment. It should have all your accomplishments and experiences on it. And if you want the job, you take that to your employer, and it's your validating performance record. It's your righteousness, in a sense. You say, this means I'm worthy of this position. Accept me. And if your performance record is good enough, if you're good enough, you get the job. In a sense, you're justified. You're accepted. Or say it's not a job, you want an advanced degree, and you want to get into a certain school. What do you do? Well, you don't bring out your vocational record. You bring out your academic record. You bring out your grades, and your grades function as your validating performance record. And you say, look at this. Because of these grades, I'm worthy of this position. Please accept me. And if you're good enough, again, you're accepted. That's how it works. And because that's how it works in almost all of life, because we're constantly being evaluated and accepted or rejected on the basis of our performance, it's tempting then to believe that's how it's going to work on Judgment Day. And the fact is, that's how most religions answer as well. Only it's not your employment record or your academic record, it's your own moral record, how good you've been. How will you be justified by God? It's not complicated. For many religions, it's how you did. This is how you escape hell and get into heaven. You'll get out your own little performance record, all the times you, you went to church or tried or prayed, tithed, your righteousness, and you offer it up to God as the judge, and you know that he's going to have to be gracious, but... You assume that he will be gracious, and he'll look at it, and if you're good enough, you, you tried hard enough, you're accepted. The only problem being, of course, the, the, the only problem being, that is the one method that absolutely will not work on Judgment Day, because God is righteous. He's actually righteous, and you are not. That is Romans 1 to 3, and you remember that. At the climax, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and, and 20, how Paul proves that. He proves that by bringing up the one group of people 
most likely to be able to justify themselves. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And you remember, this is verse 19, and he's talking about the Jews. That's those who are under the law. And this is like an illustration Paul's using. So again, if we think that we're somewhat righteous, and most of us do, Paul says, think about the Jews. Because here, out of the entire world, God picks them, and he gives them every spiritual privilege you could imagine. And yet, even though they had all that, even they can't justify themselves, and we know they can't because we look back at the law, the standard the judge uses, and the law reveals they haven't kept it. And we said last week, seeing that and all the ways they failed shouldn't make us proud, it should make us humble because if they weren't able to keep it, that proves, Paul says, none of us can. Verse 19 again, now we know That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world be held accountable to God. You know, I'm not trying to preach last Sunday's sermon all over again, but it's just that to understand the gospel and the solution to this problem that Paul's going to give us in verse 21 and following, you have to understand the problem. And to understand the problem, you have to understand how impossible it would be for you to justify yourself. Even if all you had to do was add a little bit, like just show one thing. If God left one work for you to do, you would be incapable. And I know that's intense and hard to take, especially in the the world right now. If, If I meet someone who says, I can't do this, what do I tell them as an American? You can do this. That's like our entire culture, or at least you have to prove to me that you're willing to try. And so it's really tempting to think there has to be something in us, even if it's really small. And yet, when it comes to justification, this question, how can you have peace with God, it's obvious that won't work. Again, not because God's not good, but the opposite, because he is good good because he is so good and this is part of what sparked the reformation actually you remember the reformation and martin luther martin luther was was not a a bad guy the opposite he was a he was a catholic monk who tried his 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 best and so he grew up believing that you're saved by the grace of god after you do all that you can do this whole idea that Paul's saying is impossible was his gospel, Martin Luther's. Someone has said the bumper sticker in the Middle Ages was, God will not deny his grace to those who do what lies within them, which was a a long bumper sticker, I guess. But (laughs) the idea was that God helps those who help themselves. And yet what Luther came to realize was that he could not help himself. That, that, that was the whole problem. He desperately wanted to be right with God, and so he did everything that he thought a good Catholic should as passionately as he could. He confessed his sins. He prayed. He fasted. But the more he did all that, the more he realized what a sinner he was. He writes, I was indeed a good monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say, if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been I. 
All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. Have you ever felt that? My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being satisfied by my efforts. And what was bothering Luther's was what should bother every sinner who doesn't understand the gospel. It is the holiness and righteousness of God. Luther knew that God demanded punishment for his sin, which was right. He should demand punishment for sin. And as a result for Luther, it seemed like there was no way for him to escape. After all, he says, who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And should I, a miserable little worm, say, I want this, I ask for this, I deserve this? Here I am, dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, true, most holy God. And it was this deep sense of the holiness of God that compelled Luther to search the scriptures. He, he knew he needed an answer. And he knew the answer had to be something better than just trying a little harder. Because he knew God was holy. And so this idea of proving to God that he was good enough for his grace was absolutely impossible because he saw that sin had so messed him up that even the good things he did were like filth before God. Which, honestly, at first, as he came to understand that, made him angry. You read Luther, and he was angry with God. And if you've ever felt angry at God like that, it might be a good first step because it means you're hearing it. And Luther felt angry because he felt so trapped and hopeless until he saw what made Paul so excited about the gospel here in Romans. And it was Romans that changed Luther. Because in Romans, he saw that the gospel reveals something so much better than just a call to present to God your performance record or a command to justify yourself through more religious activity. But now, Paul says, if you look at verse 21 of, of chapter 3, but obviously being a contrast, in contrast to what Paul had just been saying, and we know that Paul had just been saying something about the law and what it teaches about people and how there is none righteous, no, not one. And Paul's been saying the reason it says that so clearly is to get us to stop looking to ourselves. In other words, Paul's saying one reason the law is there is to make as clear as possible that there's not one way, no, there, there, there's no possible way that any of us not one of us, Jew, Gentile, whoever, can ever earn a drop of God's grace through our own efforts. We all need to be justified, and we all can't justify ourselves. Again, that's the problem, and it's important you felt that problem. Have you felt that problem? Have you ever felt trapped and hopeless as you look at yourself and the holiness of God? Because it is only when you understand how much you need peace with God that you can understand the Bible's answer to the question how you can have peace with God. No man truly rejoices until he's been made miserable. But now, Paul says, Romans 3, verse 21, 
but being a contrast, and now having to do with a, a point in time. But now, for the first time in history, you might say, another kind of righteousness has been revealed. After Paul proves that you're not going to be able to come up with a righteousness of your own that's going to stand on judgment day, he explains, verse 21, God did. God did. That's what's going on with Jesus. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, in contrast to what I've just been saying about the unrighteousness of man and what I've just been saying about everyone being sinners and what I've just been saying about our inability to obey the law, now, but now, at this point in time, the righteousness of God has been manifested, been made known. So again, how can you have peace with God when God is righteous and The law has made so absolutely clear that you are not. There's only one answer. If you're going to stand before God, you need another righteousness. That's the answer. It it can't be yours because you do not have a righteousness that will stand before God. If God accepted your righteousness, he would no longer be righteous. I mean, you and I, we do not even have the beginnings of a righteousness that will stand before God. So you need another righteousness. You need a completely outside of you righteousness. As someone has said, the only way a righteous God can accept you as righteous and still be righteous is if there's another righteousness out there that can be given to you. And it has to be a perfect righteousness. It has to be a righteousness that is equal to the righteousness of God which means it has to be the righteousness of God. And this is the issue. This is the whole issue. To stand before a righteous God, you need to be righteous like God. And the only one with that kind of righteousness is God, which is what excited Paul about the gospel and about Jesus. And it should be what excites us. And that's why I'm spending all this time here, because this is one of the things that drives us as a church. Romans 3, verse 21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. One of the things that makes the gospel feel so exciting and us so urgent and so passionate is because we have this message that is so unusual. It's unusual first because it doesn't minimize the problems with people. The gospel doesn't close its eyes to what's wrong. And it doesn't try to pretend that you don't have a problem. And yet it's not hopeless because it shows there's a solution. And again, that solution is so different than every other religion out there because every other religion out there is coming and trying to fix your righteousness or supplement your righteousness. In other words, it's trying to teach you how to be more righteous. Every other religion is trying to help you. How how, how can we fix this up so God can like it? And the thing is, actually, even if you're not religious, it's almost worse because here you have this sense of guilt and shame that you can't even explain, really. You don't even totally know where it comes from, but it's there. And you're looking for ways to deal with this inadequacy. And what you find is every other idea out there that people give you to help you deal with that is either telling you what you can do to deny the guilt or shame or what you can do to overcome it. But the gospel is different because it's telling you, again, first of all, that you're right. That that sense of a problem within you, 
is right. Lean into that. There is a problem with you, and it's worse than you think, actually. It's so bad you can't fix it, but that doesn't mean it's hopeless. It just means if you're going to have hope, you're going to have to look outside of yourself. You don't simply need a teacher. You need a savior because you need a righteousness from outside of you. And the good news is, Romans 3, verse 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. In other words, at a point in time in history, this is historical, it's not just an idea. At a point in time in history, the Son of God came into this world and he came to our rescue by entering this world, becoming man and living an absolutely perfect life, keeping the law exactly and then dying a death he didn't deserve so he could take your punishment and give his righteousness to you as the means by which you can stand before God on judgment day and be forgiven. And more than that, be accepted. You hearing me now? Because I, I guess I'm just up here enjoying If, if this isn't something that just calls your heart, you know when somebody preaches justification, it's just like your heart just, if you're a believer. If it's not, you need to go back. This is it. This is our message. God is willing to give a perfect righteousness to those who don't have it and don't deserve it. And that's part of what makes the message we proclaim as a church so special. It is this great exchange, our sin for God's righteousness, for Christ's righteousness. God punishes Jesus for our sins on the cross. And when we put our faith in him, just as our sins were charged to Jesus, his perfect obedience is credited to our account. At a point in time in our life, everything changes. We are given the righteousness of God, which is how we know. We absolutely know God accepts us. This is our case, not me. Jesus, not what I've done, what he did. I have the righteousness of Christ. And I want to take a few minutes and look more carefully at this righteousness that Paul says the gospel has revealed, partly because I think it's really hard for us to believe it, to enjoy it. it it's, it's hard for us to believe we're as bad as the Bible says we are, and it's hard for us to believe we have it as good as the Bible says we do. And so I, I want us to look at verse 21 and following at five characteristics of this righteousness that's given to Christians. First, Paul says it's apart from the law, and you, and you see that in verse 21, right? But, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And in the original language the Bible was written in, it's actually, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so this is something Paul's fronting because he wants it to be a, a big deal. It is a big deal to him, and he, and he wants us to remember it. As he's talking to these people who were tempted to look to their obedience to the law for a right relationship with God, he's emphasizing the righteousness revealed in the gospel has nothing to do with your ability to keep God's law. You are not accepted by God on the basis of your own personal performance. And I emphasize your own personal ability to keep God's law because the righteousness that God gives you obviously does have something to do with someone keeping the law. That's part of what makes it so beautiful because when Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, he's not saying that God 
accepts people by suddenly deciding, you know what, I'm going to forget my law. I know that's how a lot of people think it works on Judgment Day. God kind of just looks the other way when it comes to, to sin. But a holy God can't do that because he has a law, and that law is good. His standards are absolutely right, and they have to be kept, which means the only way for anyone to be accepted as righteous in God's sight is if God's law has been kept perfectly. Which means when Paul says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, he's not saying it has nothing to do with the law. Otherwise, it wouldn't be righteousness. Because what is righteousness? Righteousness is keeping the law. Instead, the the reason he says the righteousness revealed in the gospel is apart from the law is because it's apart from your own personal keeping of the law. It is based on someone else's. And he has to emphasize that, and we have to keep emphasizing that because, you know, sinners love any form of self-salvation. Even as believers, when we start to grow and mature, we have to be on guard that we don't go back. We're so attracted to any form of self-salvation that we're tempted, even knowing what we know, to begin basing our confidence of acceptance by God on the basis of how well we're doing or how well other people are doing, or how well other people think we're doing. And it's funny how so much of our lives, it, we go back and forth. When we're relying on ourselves, it gets weird. So sometimes people make the bar really low, you know, so they can feel confident. And so if they, you know, they make up these rules outside of the Bible, and if they can keep those rules outside of the Bible, they feel pretty good about themselves and think, I'm fine with God. And they're usually self-righteous towards others and not that excited about the gospel because they don't really think they need it. Where with others, actually, they're almost the opposite because their bar is really high. And so they're reading their Bibles and they know living for Jesus is more than just going to church. And they see all these sins in their hearts that no one else sees. And they feel like they're always failing. And so they have all this guilt and self-pity and shame because they don't feel like they measure up. And the problem with both is that they're making it about themselves. Which is why Paul is saying in as many ways as possible, as Jerry Bridges, Bridges has put it, That our acceptance with God, our day-to-day acceptance with the Father, is not based on what we do for God, but upon what Christ did for us. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although, Paul says, and this is second, the, the law and prophets bear witness to it. In other words, it's not that this way of salvation is something totally new, and completely unexpected. It's almost like Paul saying, don't get me wrong, because part of what makes the Bible such a a beautiful message is that it tells one single story of God glorifying himself by saving sinners. And so while the gospel we read in the the New Testament reveals more clearly how God's going to provide this righteousness for the ungodly, it's based on what God already taught us in the Old Testament. It's not like God has two methods of salvation. One he reveals in the Old Testament and one he reveals in the new, and you kind of have to choose between the two. Instead, the the justification of believers in the Old Testament is the same as the justification of believers in the new, which is actually the whole point Paul's going to make in Romans 4 when he talks about Abraham. If you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 3, he writes, What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that word counted means credited 
And so it's not that Abraham believed and somehow was enabled to be righteous enough to stand before God. Instead, it's that Abraham believed and God gave him a righteousness, crediting that righteousness to his account, just like we're reading he does with us, which is why it's called a gift in Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, which I'm saying is this incredible, amazing explanation of justification by faith alone from the Old Testament. And Paul's able to do that because this has always been the plan. If you look through history and the way God saves sinners, you'll find that every single sinner is saved the same way. Abraham, David, me, you, Old Testament believer and new, we all experience peace with God on the basis of this righteousness that comes apart from the law. Through faith. Number three, through faith. So God's awesome because if the righteousness we present to God isn't by us keeping the law, then obviously we have to be able to receive that righteousness some other way. Like, how do we get it? And we receive this righteousness, Paul says, uh, through faith, verse 22. So it's kind of like you might imagine two options when it comes to standing before God. Either you can show God the righteousness you've earned through your obedience to the law and through your accomplishments, or you can show him a righteousness that you've been given through faith. But if you're going to be accepted, those are your only options. And those two righteousness, righteousnesses are, are mutually exclusive. Exclusive. So if you're, you're trusting in the one, you're not trusting in the other because they don't mix. It's almost like you're on a, on a ship that's sinking with these two possible lifeboats in front of you. And so you have to choose. One lifeboat is called your righteousness. The other lifeboat is called the righteousness proclaimed in the gospel, Christ's righteousness. They're two different boats, and you can't be in both boats at the same time. It's impossible. By choosing to get in one boat, you're choosing not to get in the other, which is what happens when a person's truly converted. He gets out of the boat labeled my righteousness and is put in the boat labeled Christ's righteousness. And this is important, you have to understand, because when a person becomes a Christian, it's not just that he decides to get more religious or better, and you hear people talk about that. Maybe something's going wrong in their life, and it's like, it's time to be a Christian. I'm going to start going to church as if going to church made you a Christian. It's good to go to church, but that's not why you go to church. And the person who's become a Christian knows that. He knows that the boat called my righteousness is not going to save him. And so he gets in the other one. He looks completely outside of himself and what he does for salvation. And one of the best testimonies to that was the way Paul put it in Philippians 3. You remember the scripture that Isaiah read. And Paul's such a good illustration because he's someone you might think would have had reason to trust in himself for acceptance by God. He says, actually, if anyone had a reason to trust in themselves, I had more. And yet whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And in other words, Paul's testimony is, I made a deliberate decision not just to repent of my bad deeds, but to repent of my religious ones. There's uh, someone who put it like this one time, and it always stuck with me. Sometimes when we think about what it means to repent and become a Christian, we think of the bad things we did. And that's right, but in Philippians 3, Paul takes it a step further, and he says he also had to repent of trusting in the good things he did. 
He didn't just repent of the bad things. He repented of trusting in the good things. And it's because when you're trusting in the good things you've done, you're not trusting in Jesus. When you're relying on the good things you're doing, you're trying to be your own savior when God's already provided a perfect one. And that's ugly. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And we might add that depends on faith alone. Not faith plus. Faith plus your efforts is damning, actually, if that's what you are relying on. It's not that works don't matter. That's not why we say faith alone. True faith produces works, of course. But the reason we emphasize faith alone is because works that you do to earn salvation are sin and bring condemnation. Motivation matters. We all know that. And God's made the way of salvation clear. Faith alone is the instrument through which you can receive the righteousness he gives in the gospel. It's like with a beggar, and I'm sure I've said this before, only it's the opposite of how we work. Usually a beggar comes to our door, uh, and he says, look, we say, look, I'll give you something if you're willing to work for it. And sometimes they'll even say that. I don't want a handout. I want to earn it. Where... With God, it's actually the exact opposite. You show up at God's door, you can't bring anything with you as a reason why God has to give you this gift, except for his promise to give this gift to those who don't deserve it because of Jesus. The only kind of beggar God will give his righteousness to are the ones standing at his door saying, I don't deserve it, I can't earn it, but I desperately want it, and I know you'll give it, because you've promised you would. That's how you're accepted by God, not through works of the law, but through faith in God's promise. Listen, grace is never for the achievers. It's only for the bankrupt. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, you know the Heidelberg Catechism, it's like a question and answer devotional, and it asks, listen to this, this is so good. How are you righteous with God? And the answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And I love this next part, so just get ready to be like, It says, I'll try to read it slowly enough, but it's so good how I got to get excited. It says, although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, credits that to my account. He grants these to me as if I never had committed any sin and as if if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Come on, the gospel's good, huh? It's so good, this is our message. Look at that, read that, delight in that, enjoy that. That is life. That is the life, that's the kind of motivation that causes us to be a church. We realize that the righteousness that God gives comes through faith. 
and specifically faith in Christ. That's the fourth characteristic of the righteousness the gospel reveals. It's so different. It's apart from the law. It's revealed through the Old Testament. We receive it through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's fourth, in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is so important because, you know, we always try to make some, everything about ourselves. We're, like, really good at that. And so even if we say we believe we've been justified by faith, you know what we want to focus on? The faith. It's like we're trying to find a way to make a law out of the gospel. We love law. So how much faith? Or do I have enough faith? And obviously it's not wrong to evaluate your, whether you have saving faith. Do I believe God is for me because of the work of Christ? Do I trust that God will be faithful to his promises to save me, even though I don't deserve it because of what Jesus did? It's good to evaluate that. But if it's saving faith that we're evaluating, you need to understand that it won't let you look at it for very long. Saving faith is going to want you to look to Christ because that's the whole point of saving faith. The whole point of saving faith is to look outside of yourself to Christ because Christ is our righteousness. I mean, it's not that faith is our righteousness. We so want to justify ourselves by something in ourselves that we even try to make faith into a work. If God doesn't accept me on the basis of what I do, maybe he'll accept me on the basis of how good I am at believing, which isn't really saving faith. The specific quality of saving faith, one man explains, is trust and commitment to another. It's essentially outward-looking, and in that respect is the exact opposite of works. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks at what God does. Works have respect to what we are. Faith is simply a means of finding all one's hope outside of oneself in the person and work of another. In other words, it's an instrument. It's the instrument by which we embrace Christ, and it's his life and death which justifies us. It's not that God says, okay, you know what? Instead of saved, being saved by works, I will accept faith in the place of works. As if when God looks at you on judgment day, instead of looking how, at how well you kept the law, he's like, well, let's look at how well they believed. He's like, okay, I guess, you know, they had enough faith, and that faith, I'll say, is righteousness. Instead, it's Christ. It's Christ. As B.B. Warfield once put it, the saving power of faith resides thus not in itself, but in the almighty Savior on whom it rests. It's not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. Faith in God's gospel promises saves because it's the means God's established to unite us to Christ, which helps us understand even how salvation works. Because God's not the kind of God who says something is one way when it's not. That would be called lying. And when God pronounces you innocent, it's like God's saying something. We call this justification. And justification is this act in which God declares you righteous and says that you're not guilty. And the reason he can do that truthfully, honestly, is because at a certain point in time in history, the penalty the law demanded for your sins and my sins was paid. And at a certain point in time in history, the Son of God became man and lived his whole life doing absolutely everything God wanted. That's the foundation for justification that Paul explains down in verses 24 and 25, where Paul says, 
We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, which are more big words that deserve their own sermons. But, but basically, Paul's saying there's a very real righteousness that's revealed in the gospel that's based on the fact that Jesus did live a perfect life and died on the cross on behalf of those who would put their faith in him. Because on the cross... God took every single last drop of his anger at the sins of believers and poured it out on Jesus. That's what the word propitiation means. And faith is the hand that receives the gift from God. Faith grabs hold and says, the work that Jesus accomplished is mine. It's mine. That's even one of the things we're reminding each other at communion. It it, it hears the way that Jesus bore the wrath of God and says, he bore my wrath. It looks at everything Jesus says, did, and, and says, it's all for me personally. It's mine. It's not just generically true for others. It's mine. Not because I'm somehow special, but because God has made promises to give himself and, and all that he has to, to those who have let go of holding on to their own efforts and come empty-handed to receive. And I let go. And I grab hold confidently. Because I know God always does what he says he'll do. Which I'm belaboring, and I hope I'll belabor it the rest of my life. And throughout all eternity, because I want you to understand, this is how saving faith works. It's how it operates. It teaches you to look outside of yourself to Christ. Because it's Christ and his work that's the means of our acceptance with God. It's kind of like... You know, if I'm standing on a lake of ice, and I can't remember where I heard this illustration, but if I'm standing on a lake of ice, what keeps me from falling in is not my faith in the ice. It's the ice. And so if I'm worried about my faith in the ice, it's appropriate for me to ask, am I even standing on the ice or not, right? It doesn't matter how solid the ice is if I'm not standing on it. And there are lots of people like that with Jesus. They say they're Christians, but they're not standing on the ice, They're over there on the side, on the shore, talking about how they're standing on the ice. And someone needs to go to them lovingly and say, are you sure you have the faith you say you do? Because it doesn't even look to me like you're on the ice. But on the other hand, if I'm struggling with worry as I'm standing on the ice, if I'm on the ice and I'm like, oh, man, is this going to hold me? Is this going to hold me? It would make more sense to look at the ice and make sure the ice is strong than it would be to stand there just wondering if my faith is strong enough because it's the ice that really matters. It is Christ and his work that enables you to have peace with God. And saving faith takes you by the hand and teaches you to keep looking, keep hoping, keep banking everything on him. When you're looking at yourself and you're seeing how you failed, saving faith teaches you to say, yes, I have failed. I have I have." deserve God's judgment. I do deserve God's judgment, but that doesn't mean I'm lost because, you see, saving faith doesn't just let us follow our feelings. It takes us back to Christ and it says, look at him. And so even though I feel far from God, it's true. I I know the one who came and took the punishment my sin deserves, and his name is Jesus. And I know God's united me to me, united me to him. And so long as God the Father loves Jesus, he'll love me. Because it's not my feelings that earn my acceptance with God. It's Jesus. 
It's not my righteousness that justifies. It's Jesus's. And when your heart is saying to you, you know what, you're a loser. How could God ever approve of you? Saving faith teaches you to say back, yeah, you may be right. At least that I'm a sinner and I hate that I'm a sinner and I'll fight against my sin. But I will not lose hope over it because I know the God who sent a savior for sinners and that he's taken my sin upon himself on the cross. Satan loves to hand you a mirror when your conscience is plaguing you. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Either he hands you a mirror or he tries to poke out your eyes. Don't look at yourself. The thing is, he doesn't want you to look at Jesus. Which, if you're a believer, is how God looks at you. He never looks at you by yourself. He always looks at you in Jesus. And so when you've been looking at the mirror in the mirror and you're feeling so discouraged over your sin, you might say the gospel has you put down the mirror and pick up a photograph of a perfectly beautiful savior who came to provide forgiveness for even the worst of sinners and saving faith. You know what saving faith does? It dares you to believe that. It teaches you to bank everything on God's goodness to those who come in Jesus, to believe that God wants you to believe. He is for you because of Christ. Remember uh, Martin Luther saying, uh, he, when, before he became a Christian, he, he used to dream of meeting someone that he thought was a, a holy man. And so he imagined, what would a holy man be? Meeting a great holy man. And he thought of them, you know, back then, living in the desert, praying, fasting, doing all these kinds of obvious holy things until he came to understand the gospel. Because when he came to understand the gospel, he says, the ones Christ and the apostles call holy are not those who simply live a single life for no reason or observe days, only eat in certain foods or wear certain clothes or any such things or in outward appearance do other great works, but holy ones are those who believe they are sanctified and cleansed by the death and blood of Jesus. These are the ones the Bible calls holy the children and heirs of God. Whoever believes in Christ, whether he or she is a man or a woman, bond or free, is a holy one, not by his own works, but by the works of Christ. That is good news. The righteousness God reveals in the gospel, the righteousness that will enable you to stand before God as forgiven and accepted, is apart from the law. It's revealed throughout the scriptures. It comes through faith in Christ for all who believe. And that's the fifth characteristic of the gospel, or the righteousness the gospel reveals. It's available for all who believe. Quoting Paul, he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And Paul's saying, if anyone's going to be accepted by God, it's going to be the same way. Which humbles uh, some of us because we kind of think we're important. And it frustrates others of us because we really want to be able to stand before God on the basis of our efforts. And it thrills the rest of us because we know it means there's hope. You know, as I talk about the gospel sometimes over the years, and especially the part about being sinners, a lot of people don't like what the Bible teaches about us being sinners. But I personally love it. And you know why I love it? It's because it means I actually can be certain that I'm going to be accepted by God. Because what kind of assurance could I have if it was based on me? Like none. If someone asked you, 
how can you be sure you're accepted by God? And you were thinking, because I'm pretty good or, or I pray a lot. I'll tell you what, if that was me, I would have no certainty because who am I? I mean, I look at God and he's awesome and holy and I look at me and I look at his law and what he actually demands. I know very well I've got nothing, which is one of the things I love about the gospel because as I look at the gospel, I see that's that's not just me, that's absolutely all of us. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so we all have only one hope. And that's what the Bible teaches about the righteousness provided by God in Christ that's available through faith and faith alone. Why, why should God bring you into his presence if you were to die today? Why should a holy God look at you and say, I approve, I, I love, I delight? How can you have peace with God. There's only one answer, one, only one. It's because he has declared you not guilty, forgiven you of all your sins, and accepted you as perfectly righteous, not because he's forgotten his law, not because he's changed his definition of righteousness, but because of the work of Christ, because he's promised he would take Christ's obedience and the price Christ paid on the cross for sins and apply them to your account through faith and faith alone. You know, we're going to be talking about the implications of that answer next week. It's a big answer, and it, it changes everything. But I, I can't really close without asking, has it changed you? Do you have peace with God? Do you know? Are you sure? Do you have this righteousness that's apart from the law, that's promised throughout the Old Testament, that's manifested in the gospel, that is received through faith, and that is given to all who believe on the basis of the work of Christ. And if you have it, are you believing it today? Do you enjoy it? Are you living like a person who has peace with a holy God? Make it your purpose to never waste time trying to build a righteousness outside of Jesus or depend on any record of righteousness other than Jesus. Put this desperate desire to justify yourself, to earn validation, down, and apply this great gospel reality to the way you live. What difference would it make on the way you think about the, other way, the way people treat you if you believed you have the peace with God on the basis of what Christ has done? What difference would it make on the way you think about the future, on the way you respond to trials, on the way you treat others, if you believe you have this righteousness? It should make a difference on everything, because this is really the ultimate question, right? Ultimate question. And if this ultimate question is answered, it should make a difference in your life. Does it? Let's pray. Lord, we're blind to the beauty of the gospel unless your spirit gives us sight. We can't even have this faith that is talked about here unless you show us grace and enable us. And so we ask that those here who have never really seen the beauty of the gospel and just growing up, being religious, thinking maybe they know, 
without really knowing, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, open their eyes. Make them miserable so they can experience joy. Show them what they deserve and enable them to really believe that so they can begin to look to the only solution, which is you and what you've done through Christ. And the rest of us, Lord, you know us. You know we really want it to be about us. And even though we, we've been saved this way through faith alone, so often we don't connect the dots, like in how we live life and how we feel and, and what we think about and the way we relate to others. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us, not just be people who say, oh, we believe in justification by faith alone, but living like everyone else. But help us to be people whose lives, whose lives, the, the, the way we communicate, the way we think about others, the way we, the, the things that are our priorities, all of that, that that would be turned upside down by this great stunning news that we hear in the gospel. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.